Esther chapter 4. We turn again to God's Word, but before we read God's Word again, I want to read some words to you that come from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. General Kenobi, years ago you served my father in the Clone Wars. Now he begs you to help him in his struggle against the Empire. I regret that I am unable to present my father's request to you in person, but my ship has fallen under attack, and I'm afraid my mission to bring you to Alderaan has failed. I have placed information vital to the survival of the rebellion into the memory systems of this R2 unit. My father will know how to retrieve it. You must see this droid safely delivered to him on Alderaan. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Famous words delivered by Princess Leia in the original Star Wars movie. And some very similar words will be uttered by Mordecai to Esther in Esther chapter 4. So remember where we left off a few weeks ago. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, was exalted by King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. And he was given a new position in the Persian kingdom. And as Haman was paraded throughout the streets of Susa, he expected everyone to bow down to him and show him honor. And we saw a few weeks ago that Mordecai would not bow down to him. So Haman went to King Ahasuerus and greased him up and got his permission to kill all of the Jews that are scattered throughout the Persian Empire. And as the Jews received this death threat on the eve of the Passover, Ahasuerus and Haman sat down to enjoy a few beers. And so we left off in chapter 3, and it was the most desperate hour for the Jews. Now, in Esther chapter 4, we will see Mordecai send word to Esther that she has to use her position as queen to intervene and to save her people, the Jews. Mordecai will tell Esther words that are very similar to what Princess Leia said. Mordecai will tell Esther that she is their only hope. But as I read and as I reflected on it this week, I have a feeling that even though the text doesn't tell us the words that he used specifically, I think Mordecai may have called Esther by her given Jewish name, which is Hadassah. And I think perhaps as he interacts with her in chapter 4, he refers to her as Hadassah to drive home the point that she too is a Jew and that she too is in as much danger as the rest of the Jews, even though she's the queen. So I think Mordecai may have referred to Esther as Queen Hadassah, which in the Hebrew is Hamakah Hadassah. So Mordecai basically says to Esther, the way I see it, Queen Hadassah, we beg your help in this struggle against the Persian Empire. I have placed information vital to the survival of our people into the hands of this R2 eunuch, Mr. Hattok. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Hamakah Hadassah, you're my only hope. This is the most desperate hour for the Jews For Mordecai and for Esther, they are about 11 months away from state-approved mass genocide. The question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, how in the world does this point us to Jesus? 
What does this chapter tell us and teach us about God? Well, Esther 4 will show us that we too, like Mordecai and Esther, are in need of rescue. Rescue from the coming wrath of God if we are unbelievers, but rescue from ourselves as well. Even though we are believers in union with Christ and nothing can change that ever, we are in constant need of being rescued from ourselves. We need daily rescuing from ourselves. And so that's the big idea that we'll see today. Jesus loves us too much to leave us the way we are. This is what we'll see with Esther and Mordecai. The Lord is keeping his promises to his people. He's keeping his promise that he made to Adam and Eve that one of their descendants would come along and crush the head of that talking serpent. God is keeping his promise to Abraham in Esther chapter 4. And Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, loves his people too much to leave them under a death threat. And he loves Esther and he loves Mordecai too much to leave them trapped inside their own little kingdoms of self, which is where they are. And so the Lord will begin to rescue Esther and Mordecai even as he rescues his people the Jews. You see, that's just how Jesus works. He loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. Today, Jesus loves you the way you are, right where you are, and not where you should be, and not where you are pretending to be. He loves you too much to leave you there. He's pursuing you today. Right now, the Spirit of God is pursuing you, pursuing your heart to rescue you from the little kingdom of self that you live in every day. And he wants to see change and transformation happen that results in your joy and results in his glory and results in the furthering of his kingdom and his purposes. And we will see him begin that process with Esther and Mordecai in chapter 4. So look at Esther chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the God who loves us so much. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes." Okay, so Mordecai and the rest of the Persian Empire learns of Haman's evil plan to wipe out all of the Jews in the Persian kingdom, and everyone goes into typical mourning protocol for the ancient Near East. This is how you would express grief. This is how you would express mourning and lament and anguish. There would be uh, fasting. There would be weeping. You would tear your clothes. You would put on sackcloth, which I imagine is very itchy. I don't know. 
never worn it before. You would sprinkle ashes on your head. And this is how we find Mordecai and quite a few others at the beginning of chapter 4 in Esther. Mordecai rips his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, he sprinkles ashes all over his head, and he screams and he cries out in the middle of the city of Susa. By the way, there's a great Halloween costume for you if you need one for this year. You could dress up as Mordecai. Seems like it would be pretty easy to put that outfit together. Potato sack and some ashes. There you go. I just saved a lot of you some trouble. But notice the contrast here. Up to this point in the story, the Persian clothes have been extravagant. The Persian feasts have been over the top. And there's this top-of-the-line beauty cosmetics that we saw in chapter 2. And now in chapter 4, you have Mordecai dressed up like Pigpen from Peanuts, from Charlie Brown. And people begin to take notice of Mordecai because he kind of stands out looking like a zombie, walking around through the city, yelling and crying and screaming. And so people see this and hear this, and they go to Esther, and they tell her what her adoptive father is up to. Look at verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So Esther gets word about what Mordecai is doing, and she is disturbed. Now, Esther doesn't know anything yet about the death threat on the Jews. She's not aware of this. She doesn't know that Haman manipulated her husband so that he could kill her dad and all of the Jews, and really, so that he could kill Esther, even though he didn't know Esther was a Jew. So Esther knows nothing about this plan. Esther is just troubled that Mordecai is doing this, that he's dressed this way and acting this way in public. And what is her answer? What is her plan to solve this problem? I'll send him a tailor-made suit. That'll that'll solve everything. Obviously, the king had several stylists at his disposal, so Esther sends Mordecai a nice suit to put on. Now, why? Why would she do this? Well, it could be, and and I am personally persuaded of this, and there are other scholars who believe this too, that Esther is so wrapped up in Persian culture that she's being superficial here. She is so assimilated into the mindset and the worldview and the Persian culture high life that she just sends Mordecai a change of clothes. It's like she's on her own reality TV show here, The Real Housewives of Susa. She just wants to stop this unpleasant scene that to her is so uncivilized. Her time in the palace has isolated her from God's people, from God's word, from performing sacrifices. She doesn't even go out to see Mordecai. This is her dad. She doesn't even go out to talk to him to find out what's wrong. She's so disconnected that she sends someone else out to talk to her dad. So she simply sends her eunuch, Hattok, out with a change of clothes for Mordecai. Esther could be saying something like this. Oh, please, just shush him up. He's making a scene out there and screaming and crying and going on like that. And everybody knows that he's my dad. This is embarrassing. Here, Hattok, take this suit out to him and tell him to knock it off before the king hears about this and his head ends up on a platter. That's a possible interpretation of what's going on here. Some scholars follow this line of thinking, and I think they are correct. I think 
Esther has so assimilated to Persian culture, she's so disconnected from God's people that her answer is, let's just give them a new change of clothes. Let's, let's quiet this thing down. Keep in mind, Esther doesn't know yet that the king, her husband, has approved of her dad's murder. Esther may be trying to get Mordecai to stop acting this way in public because the king might hear about it and he might throw Mordecai into the river with a pair of concrete shoes on, but Esther doesn't know that Mordecai's death has already been approved and put on the calendar by the king. So I think she's trying to keep him quiet so the king doesn't get mad and kill her dad, but she doesn't know that the king has already approved a law and put it into place that's going to kill her dad and herself 11 months from now. That's what I think is happening here. And so we feel this tension, and we wonder what's going to happen. Mordecai doesn't need a new suit. He needs a savior. Look at verse 5. Then Esther called for Hattok, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hattok went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go into the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hattok went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hattok and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And so Esther calls for Hattog, one of the eunuchs, and she sends him out to Mordecai to figure out what's going on and why he's acting the way he's acting. And Mordecai tells Hattog everything that happened and how all the Jews are going to die and gave him a copy of the law. And then, just like Princess Leah did by sending her message to Obi-Wan through R2-D2, the R2 unit, so too Mordecai sends a copy of the king's decree through Hattog, the R2 eunuch. Hattok is like R2-D2 here. He's relaying this information to Esther. And then Mordecai tells Hattok to command Esther to barge into her husband's presence and beg and plead for his favor to save the Jews. So Hattok relays the message to Esther, and then Esther sends Hattok back to Mordecai. And by this point, Hattok has burned enough calories that he can eat 12 donuts and not worry about it. So Hattok tells Mordecai what Esther said. Esther said something along these lines. Daddy, everybody knows that if you approach the king without getting summoned, then you die. That's the law. Unless, of course, the king extends his royal scepter to you, and then you get spared death for barging in unannounced. But if you think I'm barging in unannounced, you're crazy. In fact, the king hasn't called me in to see him for 30 days. But Esther has another problem. If she tells King Ahasuerus about her people, then she will reveal the one thing that she's been hiding this whole time. The one thing she's been hiding from her husband this whole time, that she's a Jew. Esther knows what happened to Vashti, the king's previous wife, when she disobeyed. What will happen to Esther if she not only disobeys, but also reveals that she has also deceived her husband 
by hiding her Jewish identity, what will Esther do in this situation? Maybe we should ask ourselves, what would we do in this situation? The people of God throughout Scripture and throughout church history often find themselves in situations where we have to do the right thing, where we have to stand up for truth, where we have to intervene in a situation that is not right, and it will cost us, and it might even cost us our life. Andy Crouch said, sometimes suffering is simply the painful payoff of risking love in a broken world. Sometimes suffering is simply the painful payoff of risking love in a broken world. Understand this, Grace. Sometimes we suffer because we do the right thing. Sometimes we take risks for the kingdom of God. We take risks for truth. We take risks for what is right. And the payoff is that we suffer for it. We do the right thing and we suffer for it. That's how it is in a fallen, sin-wrecked, broken world. And that's right where Esther finds herself. And it will be through her risking love that Jesus will save not only her people, but even Esther herself. It's true. Jesus loves us too much to leave us the way we are. It really is true. Jesus loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And sometimes we have to love people enough to not leave situations the way that they are. Sometimes we have to love people and intervene so that we don't leave a situation the way that it is. We have to risk love in a fallen, sin-wrecked, broken world so that we don't leave things the way they should not be. Sometimes we have to risk love in a broken world and in the midst of broken relationships so that we don't leave things broken. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He risked it all to not leave us the way that we are. He risked it all to not leave us the way that we are, broken and messy and sinful. He risked it all in order to salvage our broken relationship with God. Why? Because Jesus loves us too much to leave us the way we are. While we are his enemies, Paul says in Romans 5, Christ died for us. And we will see that he loves his people too much to leave them in danger in the book of Esther. He is not going to sit by as some prideful Persian politician plots to put an end to his people. And Jesus loves Esther too much to leave her stuck in this Persian worldview and mindset. Jesus loves Esther too much to let her get lost forever in the glitz and the glamour of a Persian palace. And Jesus loves Mordecai too much to leave him as a nominal, wishy-washy Jew whose life of compromise led him to giving his daughter away in marriage to a shallow, drunken, womanizing pagan king. Jesus loves them both too much to leave them in their little kingdoms of self. Look at verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So Hattok tells Mordecai what Esther said, and then Mordecai tells Hattok to go back and pass on his words to Esther. And Hattok does this, and he's out of breath by this point, but he passes on Mordecai's words to Esther, and then he probably passes out. I mean, this guy is working. He was a good servant. In fact, Hattok's name means good. He probably got the name because this guy's a good servant. He's a, he's a good servant. And Mordecai tells Esther that just because she is queen does not mean that she will be spared when all the Jews are killed. She is going to die like all of the Jews. And then he gives the reason why in verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. If she keeps silent, then she and all of her family will die because relief and deliverance will not arise for the Jews from another place. Now, you may be thinking, but that's not what verse 14 says. Verse 14 says relief and deliverance will arise from another place. Yes, that's how it's translated in most translations, but let me explain how the Hebrew construction of verse 14 can be worded and translated. I believe that Mordecai is posing a rhetorical question to Esther. Do you think relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place? And the expected answer is, no way. I won't bore you with the Hebrew grammar here, but it's possible to translate verse 14 as a rhetorical question. So Mordecai's words to Esther in verse 14 are not a statement but a question. And here's why. Because if he's really saying relief and deliverance will arise from another place, why does he then say, but you and your father's household will perish? If Mordecai is saying, there's going to be help from somewhere else, why does he then say, but you and your father's house are going to die? If relief is coming from another place, why would Esther and her family die? They should be saved. So what he's saying is that if you don't intervene, relief and deliverance will not arise from another place. Therefore, you and your father's household will die. It doesn't make sense to say relief and deliverance will arise from another place. Praise the Lord. But you and your father's household will die. So what's happening here is he's asking a rhetorical question. He's saying, Esther, sweetie. Don't think you'll escape just because you are the queen. Do you really think relief or deliverance will actually arise from some other place? Will somebody else save us? Will deliverance come from some other source? No way. If you keep quiet, relief and deliverance will not arise from anywhere else, Esther. You're it. You're our only hope. Help me, Hamakah Hadassah. You're my only hope. And maybe, just maybe, perhaps... This is why you were chosen queen, so that you could save us. That's exactly what Mordecai says in verse 14. Maybe, call me crazy, but maybe you were chosen queen so that you could be the one that saves us. Mordecai realizes that Esther is their only hope. And the lights start to go off in his head that maybe this is why she was chosen queen. And just like Esther was the only hope for the Jews, so too Jesus our only hope. 
He is our only hope of being rescued from ourselves, which we all desperately need, in which Mordecai needed, in which Esther needed. Humanly speaking, Esther was the only hope for the Jews. But we know something else about this story, don't we? Even though God is absent, he is very much present in this story. Even though God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther, and even though Mordecai and Esther never bring up God's name, never appeal to God for his help, God is very much involved in this story. And we will see him take the moral compromise on the part of Esther of going and sleeping with a pagan king, hoping he chooses to marry you, he will take that moral compromise of her using her good looks in chapter 2 and flirting her way up to this position. He will use her moral compromise, and by his grace, he will use that to work out the salvation of the Jews. Isn't it just like our God to use an unlikely candidate to do his work? Isn't it just like our God to bring redemption out of our mess? Out of the terrible decisions that we have made, terrible choices, the compromise? Isn't it just like our God to work in all things for our good and his glory? So we see the providence of God at work here because it's Esther whom God uses to save the Jews. Esther, a beautiful queen caught up in the glitz and the glamour of the worldly Persian empire who has not seen her pagan husband for a month because he's probably shacking up with other concubines, she becomes the one God uses. Up to this point, it has been nothing but beauty treatments and and laying around on the royal bed for Esther. And there's been a whole lot of compromise. Read chapter 2. Abraham would roll over in his grave if he read Esther chapter 2. Moses would roll over in his grave if he said, what? Well, maybe they wouldn't because they were sinners just as bad as Esther. But there's a whole lot of compromise in Esther's life. But that's all about to change. God loves to use unlikely people to extend his kingdom. In fact, that's all he has to work with, right? That's all God has to work with. Other than his son, that's all he's got to work with is unlikely people, sinners, And that's good news for misfits like us, isn't it? God likes to use broken people who are often fickle to help extend his glory. God likes to use broken people who are often fickle to help extend his glory. Why? Because that's precisely how he is glorified. He uses the weak to shame the strong. And so after Mordecai's very convincing argument that Hattok just relayed to Esther, Hattok gets to go back and tell Mordecai what Esther said, which was this. Esther told Mordecai, gather all the Jews in the city and fast for me for three days, and then I will go to the king and plead our case. And if I die, I die. And then marking one of the great reversals in this book, Mordecai now obeys Esther. Previously, Esther obeyed whatever Mordecai said, and now he does what she says. Esther realizes that she is the only hope that the Jews have. And so she steps into action and she calls for a fast. Now, a quick word about the fasting here. This was a very serious fast. Most fasting back then in the ancient Near East started at sunup and it ended at sundown. But this is how dire the situation is. They will fast for 24 hours for three days. And 
they will not keep the Passover. They are actually fasting during Passover, the most important festival of the Jewish liturgical year. And because they are doing this, because they are willing to forego Passover, I believe that we get another glimpse of the compromise that has come to characterize God's people in the post-exilic period in Persia. You would think that they would celebrate Passover, which celebrated Israel's deliverance from the clutches of Pharaoh in Egypt. You would think that they would rehearse the gospel by celebrating the Passover and thus building up their faith in God's promises. You would think the Passover where the Jews were saved from a king and now they've been threatened by the law of a king, you would think that they would celebrate that Passover to give them hope that we once survived the death threat of a king, we too once again can survive the death threat of a king. But instead, they fast for Esther. There's no mention of prayer here at all. There is no mention of Yahweh and his promises to his people. No mention of God's word. No mention of the sacrificial system on the eve of Passover. I don't think Esther and Mordecai are poster children for a robust gospel-centered faith. Yes, they are trying to save the lives of the Jews. Yes, they are trying to save their own necks, but I think that's the only reason. There's no mention here of risking their life for God's kingdom so that his glory would spread to the nations. There's no mention of how the Jews are God's people and they represent him to the pagan world around them. There's no mention of we have to stay alive because God promised Adam and Eve one of their descendants would come and crush that talking serpent. There's no mention of Abraham and the God, the promises that Yahweh made to Abraham that he would have many descendants. And if we're wiped out, how does God keep that promise? There's no mention of any of that stuff here. You just get the sense that they don't want to die. They want to save their own necks. And you can't blame them for that. If I was in their situation, I would want to save my own neck too. Can't blame them for that. But you can blame them for being fickle. You can blame them for the compromise that has come to characterize their lives. You can blame them for not having a robust, gospel-centered faith that seeks God's glory. You can blame them for that. And then you and I can look in the mirror and see that many times we are just like them. Many times we are fickle. Many times we compromise. Many times we live as if we are the king and queen of our own little kingdoms of self. Many times we don't risk our lives for God's kingdom so that his glory would spread to the nation. That's how God's law exposes us here, how God's law exposes our hearts. We love us. We love ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus loves us too much to leave us the way we are. Jesus loves Mordecai and Esther, and he won't leave them the way that they are. And we have seen in the first three chapters of how disappointing they are. But Jesus will pursue them, and he will save them from themselves, even as he saves the Jews. And I say this because this is how Jesus is. He really does love us too much to leave us the way we are. Jack Miller said this, 
God loves you where you are, not where you have been pretending to be. God loves you where you are, not where you have been pretending to be. The last thing we want to admit is that we are weak, foolish, and sinful. But we are tense in our imagined righteousness. What we really need is just to face the truth about ourselves. When we do that, our lives have a special appeal to God and to unbelievers. God loves to hear a person cry out in heartbroken honesty, Lord, I am nothing but a poor sinner. Send help quickly or I'll die. That's what Mordecai should have said. That's what Esther should have said. Besides, if I perish, I perish. It's, God, if you don't send help quickly, I will die and we will die. Listen, Grace, God loves you where you are, not where you're pretending to be this morning. And some of us are pretending this morning. I'll just let that hang there for a second. Some of us are pretending this morning. But take a look at Mordecai. Mordecai is suddenly interested in being a Jew. In chapter 2, he told Esther to hide her Jewish identity, and now he wants Esther to make it known. You're so fickle, Mordecai. You're so wishy, Mordecai. You're so much like us. We're like Mordecai. We're like Esther. We're just as fickle as they are. We know how to pretend. We know how to fake it until we make it. And that's why we often need to hear the good news of the gospel is that God loves you where you are, not where you are pretending to be. Isn't that good news? I'm so glad that Jesus loves me where I am and not where I'm pretending to be. Confession. Sometimes I pretend. Sometimes I just go through the motions. I know none of you ever do that. None of you ever just have your quiet time and kind of go through the motions like, I want to get this done because I've got to check that box off because I'm a person that likes to check off those boxes. So much for spending time with the God of the universe, I just want to check off a box. Can you honestly say sometimes that's why you read your Bible? So you don't feel that guilt and that shame? Sometimes we just go through the motions. Listen, I can do fake really good. I can play Christian very well. I'm fickle. And the one who sees through my shams loves me right where I'm at. You can file that under gospel goodness. And he not only loves me where I am, he loves me too much to leave me the way that I am. Jesus is relentless in his pursuit of us. He chases us down. He pursues us. He's relentless. If you don't believe me, try to run from Jesus, Christian. You've done it before, I've done it, and he is relentless in his pursuit of us. He will not leave us alone. It's miserable to be running from Jesus, is it not? He pursues us, he rescues us from us. In the book of Esther, he's rescuing Esther from Esther. She's caught up in the glitz and the glamour of this Persian worldview, totally forsaking her Jewish upbringing. Don't call me Hadassah anymore. Call me Esther, the Persian named after a Persian god, Ishtar. Call me that. Don't tell anyone I'm a Jew. And Jesus is rescuing Mordecai from Mordecai. One minute, Mordecai wants everyone to hide their Jewish identity. Don't tell anybody you're a Jew. And then the next minute, he reveals why he will not bow down to Haman. Because I am a Jew. Make up your mind, Mordecai. 
Listen, Grace, Jesus loves you the way you are, where you are, and not where you should be or not where you're pretending to be. But he also loves you too much to leave you there. He wants to see change. He wants to work transformation that results in your joy, in his glory, and in his kingdom being extended in this world. The gospel comes daily to rescue us. Jesus comes daily to rescue us. But Jesus doesn't come to rescue us for some eternity far off into the future. He rescues us now, every day. Every day he is the great redeemer who exposes and heals our selfish, legalistic hearts. Every day he comes to rescue us from our own little kingdoms of self. I got mad yesterday because my wife wanted to get in the shower before me. And I said, that's my shower. I needed to be rescued from my little kingdom of self. It's like life was centers around me. Don't you people know it? I wake up in the morning, you should all bow down before me like Haman. I need to be rescued. That's just one small example. I just want to be open and honest and transparent because I know you guys are this way too. Think about it. All of you probably fought this last week over the most minute, insignificant thing. Someone took the last bagel in the kitchen and you lost it. We need to be rescued from these little kingdoms of self. What kind of kingdom is that to invite you to? Come to my little kingdom. I get the shower first, I get the last bagel. That's not a kingdom worth living for. Jesus calls us to his kingdom where we'll find joy and freedom. And Jesus came to rescue us from all of that bondage. He came to free us. He is the king that our hearts have been aching for. He came to rescue us from us, to free us and to liberate us. And then to join us and to unite us and to link us up to his kingdom, the bigger and better story of his glory. Grace always chases us down, always rescues us. And grace always runs faster. You can't outrun grace. You might as well stop. Our shepherd will not let us drift. Today, grace is chasing you down. Today, your shepherd will not let you drift. Why don't you just stop and go home? Jesus loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And the proof of that is before us today. The Lord's Supper is proof that Jesus loves us too much to leave us the way we are. The Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus lived the life that we all should have lived. And he died the death that we all deserved, and God raised him from the dead, and he's coming again. Let's pray and prepare our hearts. Father, your kindness leads us to repentance. You're so good to us and so merciful. We're so fickle and unfaithful. We walk away, or we're so self-righteous, we can't even admit that, Lord. Some people here today are saying, I'm not fickle, I'm not, that's not me. Oh, God, their hearts need to be exposed. So we confess, God, that we are sinners in need of your grace and in need of your mercy. And we repent this morning. Forgive us of our sins. We, we turn away from those things that we've run to to find satisfaction. We turn away from our little kingdoms of self, which are puny and just worthless. And we want to link up with your son by the power of the Spirit to live for his glory and for our joy. Forgive us of our sins. And now may we celebrate the coming day 
when we will be with you on the new earth and enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb forever. Give us a foretaste of that now. Empower us by your grace to live for your glory and for your kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.